The Core of Pages, Chapters 5 and 6, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Stormy times came now in the life of our Corps. When Gicardot was dismissed, his place was taken by one of our officers, Captain B. He was rather good-natured than otherwise, but he had got into his head that he was not treated by us with due reverence, corresponding to the high position which he now occupied, and he tried to enforce upon us more respect and awe towards himself. He began by quarrelling about all sorts of petty things with the upper form, and, what was still worse, he attempted to destroy our liberties, the origin of which was lost in the darkness of time, and which, insignificant in themselves, were perhaps on that same account only the dearer to us. The result of it was that the school broke for several days into an open revolt, which ended in wholesale punishment, and the exclusion from the corps of two of our favourite pages de chambre. Then the same captain began to intrude in the classrooms, where we used to spend one hour in the morning in preparing our lessons before the classes began. We were considered to be there under our teaching staff, and were happy to have nothing to do with our military chiefs. We resented that intrusion very much, and one day I loudly expressed our discontent, saying to the captain that this was the place of the inspector of the classes, not his. I spent weeks under arrest for that frankness, and perhaps should have been excluded from the school, were it not that the inspector of the classes, his assistant, and even our old director, judged that after all I had only expressed aloud what they all used to say to themselves. No sooner all these troubles were over than the death of the dowager empress, the widow of Nicholas I, brought a new interruption in our work. The burial of crowned heads is always so arranged as to produce a deep impression on the crowds, and it must be owned that this object is attained. The body of the empress was brought from Tsarkoyeselo, where she died, to St. Petersburg, and here, followed by the imperial family, all the high dignitaries of the state, and scores of thousands of functionaries and corporations, and preceded by hundreds of clergy and choirs, it was taken from the railway station through the main thoroughfares to the fortress, where it had to lie in state for several weeks. A hundred thousand men of the guard were placed along the street, and thousands of people, dressed in the most gorgeous uniforms, preceded, accompanied, and followed the hearse in a solemn procession. Litanies were sung at every important crossing of the streets, and here the ringing of the bells on the church towers, the voices of vast choirs, and the sounds of the military bands united in the most impressive way, so as to make people believe that the immense crowds really mourned the loss of the empress. As long as the body lay in state in the cathedral of the fortress, the pages, among others, had to keep the watch round it day and night. Three pages de chambre and three maids of honour always stood close by the coffin, placed on a high pedestal, while some twenty pages were stationed on the platform around which litanies were sung twice every day, in the presence of the emperor and all his family. Consequently, every week nearly one half of the corps was taken in turns to the fortress to lodge there. We were relieved every two hours, and in the daytime our service was not difficult, but when we had to rise in the night, to dress in our court uniforms, and then to walk through the dark and gloomy inner courts of the fortress to the cathedral, to the sound of the gloomy chime of the fortress bells, 
A cold shiver seized me at the thought of the prisoners who were immured somewhere in this Russian Bastille. Who knows, thought I, whether in my turn I shall not also have to join them one day or another. The burial did not pass without an accident which might have had serious consequences. An immense canopy had been erected under the dome of the cathedral over the coffin. A huge gilded crown rose above it, and from this crown an immense purple mantle lined with ermine hung towards the four thick pilasters which support the dome of the cathedral. It was impressive, but we boys soon made out that the crown was made of gilded cardboard and wood. The mantle was of velvet only in its lower part, while higher up it was red cotton, and that the ermine lining was simply cotton flannelette or swan-down to which black tails of squirrels had been sewn, while the escutcheons which represented the arms of Russia, veiled with black crepe, were simple cardboard. But the crowds which were allowed at certain hours of the night to pass by the coffin, and to kiss in a hurry the gold brocade which covered it, surely had no time to closely examine the flannelette ermine or the cardboard escutcheons, and the desired theatrical effect was obtained even by such cheap means. When a litany is sung in Russia, all the people present hold lighted wax candles, which have to be put out after certain prayers have been read. The imperial family also held such candles, and one day the young son of the Grand Duke Constantine seeing that the others put out their candles by turning them upside down, did the same. The black gauze which hung behind him from an escutcheon took fire, and in a second the escutcheon and the cotton stuff were ablaze. An immense tongue of fire ran up the heavy folds of the supposed ermine mantle. The service was stopped. All looks were directed with terror towards the tongue of fire, which went higher and higher towards the cardboard crown and the woodwork which supported the whole structure. Bits of burning stuff began to fall down, threatening to set fire to the black gauze veils of the ladies present. Alexander II lost his presence of mind for a couple of seconds only, but he recovered immediately and said in a composed voice, The coffin must be taken. The page de chambre at once covered it with a thick gold brocade, and we all advanced to lift the heavy coffin. But in the meantime the big tongue of flame had broken into a number of smaller ones, which now slowly devoured only the fluffy outside of the cotton stuff, and, meeting more and more dust and soot in the upper part of the structure, gradually died out in the folds. I cannot say what I looked most at, the creeping fire, or the stately slender figures of the three ladies who stood by the coffin, the long trains of their black dresses spreading over the steps which led to the upper platform and their black lace veils hanging down their shoulders. None of them had made the slightest movement. They stood like three beautiful carved images. Only in the dark eyes of one of them, Mademoiselle Gamaleya, tears glittered like pearls. She was a daughter of South Russia, and was the only really handsome lady amongst the maids of honour at the court. At the corps, in the meantime, everything was upside down. The classes were interrupted, those of us who returned from the fortress were lodged in temporary quarters, and, having nothing to do, spent the whole day in all sorts of frolics. In one of them, we managed to open a cupboard which stood in the room and contained a splendid collection of models of all kinds of animals for the teaching of natural history. That was its official purpose, but it was never even so much as shown to us, and now that we got hold of it, we utilized it in our own way. With a human skull which made part of the collection, 
We made a ghostly figure wherewith to frighten at night other comrades and the officers. As to the animals, we placed them in the most unappropriate positions and groups. Monkeys were seen riding on lions, sheep were playing with leopards, the giraffe danced with the elephant, and so on. The worst was that a few days later one of the Prussian princes who had come to assist at the burial ceremony, it was the one, I think, who became later on the Emperor Frederick, visited our school, and was shown all that concerned our education. Our director did not fail to boast of the excellent educational appliances which we had at the school, and brought him to that same unfortunate cupboard. When the German prince caught a glimpse of our zoological classification, he drew a long face and quickly turned away. Our old director looked horrified. He had lost the power of speech, and only pointed repeatedly with his hand at some starfishes which were placed in glass boxes on the walls by the side of the cupboard. The suite of the prince tried to look as if they had noticed nothing, and only threw rapid glances at the cause of so much disturbance, while we wicked boys made all sorts of faces in order not to burst with laughter. THE CORE OF PAGES CHAPTER Six. The school years of a Russian youth are so very different from what they are in West European schools that I must dwell upon my school life. Russian youths, as a rule, while they are yet at a lyceum or at a military school, already take an interest in a wide circle of social, political, and philosophical matters. It is true that the core of pages was, of all schools, the least congenial medium for such a development, but in those years of general revival, Broader ideas penetrated even into our midst and carried some of us away, without, however, preventing us from taking a very lively part in benefit nights and all sorts of frolics. While I was in the fourth form I took an interest in history, and with the aid of notes made during the lessons—I knew that university students do it that way—and helping myself with reading, I wrote quite a course of early medieval history for my own use. Next year— the struggle between Pope Boniface VIII and the imperial power attracted my special attention, and now it became my ambition to gain admission to the imperial library as a reader, in order thoroughly to study that great struggle. This was contrary to the rules of the library, pupils of secondary schools not being admitted. Our good Herr Becker, however, smoothed the way out of the difficulty, and I was allowed one day to enter the sanctuary and to take a seat at one of the reader's small tables, on one of the red velvet sofas with which the reading-room was then furnished. From various text-books and some books from our own library, I soon got to the sources. Knowing no Latin, I discovered nevertheless a rich supply of original sources in Old Teutonic and Old French, and found an immense aesthetic enjoyment in the quaint structure and expressiveness of the latter in the chronicles. Quite a new structure of society and quite a world of complicated relations opened before me, and from that time I learned to value far more the original sources of history than works in which it is generalized in accordance with modern views, the prejudices of modern politics, or even mere current formulae being substituted for the real life of the period. Nothing gives more impetus to one's intellectual development than some sort of independent research, and these studies of mine immensely helped me afterwards. Unhappily, I had to abandon them when we reached the second form, the last but one. The pages had to study during the last two years nearly all that was taught in other military schools in three special forms, 
and we had an immense amount of work to do for the school. Natural sciences, mathematics, and military sciences necessarily relegated history to the background. In the second form we began seriously to study physics. We had an excellent teacher, a very intelligent man with a sarcastic turn of mind, who hated learning from memory, and managed to make us think instead of merely learning facts. He was a good mathematician, and taught us physics on a mathematical basis, admirably explaining at the same time the leading ideas of physical research and physical apparatus. Some of his questions were so original, and his explanations so good, that they have engraved themselves forever on my memory. Our textbook of physics was pretty good. Most textbooks for the military schools had been written by the best men at the time, but it was rather old, and our teacher, who followed his own system in teaching, began to prepare a short summary of his lessons, a sort of aide memoire for the use of our form. However, after a few weeks it so happened that the task of writing this summary fell upon me, and our teacher, acting as a true pedagogist, trusted it entirely to me, only reading the proofs. When we came to the chapters of heat, electricity, and magnetism, they had to be written entirely anew, and this I did, thus preparing a nearly complete textbook of physics, which was printed for the use of the school. In the second form we also began to study chemistry, and we also had a first-rate teacher, a passionate lover of the subject who had himself made valuable original researches. The years 1859 to 61 were years of a universal revival of taste in the exact sciences. Grove, Clausius, Joule, and Seguin showed that heat and all physical forces are but diverse modes of motion. Helmholtz began about that time his epoch-making researches in sound, and Tyndall, in his popular lectures, made one touch, so to say, the very atoms and molecules. Gerhardt and Avogadro introduced the theory of substitutions, and Mendeleev, Lothar Meyer, and Newlands discovered the periodical law of elements. Darwin, with his origin of species, revolutionized all biological sciences, while Karl Vogt and Moleschott, following Claude Bernard, laid the foundations of true psychology and physiology. It was a great time of scientific revival, and the current which directed men's minds towards natural science was irresistible. Numbers of excellent books were published at that time in Russian translations, and I soon understood that whatever one's subsequent studies might be, a thorough knowledge of the natural sciences and a familiarity with their methods must lie at the foundation. Five or six of us joined together to get some sort of laboratory for ourselves. With the elementary apparatus recommended for beginners in Stockhardt's excellent textbook, we started our laboratory in a small bedroom of two of our comrades, the brothers Zazetsky. Their father, an old retired admiral, was delighted to see his sons engaged in so useful a pursuit, and did not object to our coming together on Sundays and during the holidays in that room by the side of his own study. With Stockhardt's book as a guide, we systematically made all experiments. I must say that once we nearly set the house on fire, and that more than once we poisoned all the rooms with chlorine and similar stuffs. But the old admiral, when we related the adventure at dinner-time, took it very nicely, and told us how he and his comrades also nearly set the house on fire, in the far less useful pursuit of punch-making, while the mother only said, amidst her paroxysms of coughing, "'Of course, if it is necessary for your learning to handle such nasty-smelling things,' 
then there's nothing to be done. After dinner, she usually took her seat at the piano, and till late at night we would go on singing duos, trios and choruses from the operas. Or else we would take the score of some Italian or Russian opera, and go through it from the beginning to the end, recitatives and all, the mother and her daughter taking the parts of the prima donna, while we managed more or less successfully to maintain all the other parts. Chemistry and music thus went hand in hand. Higher mathematics also absorbed a great deal of my time. Four or five of us had already decided that we should not enter a regiment of the guards, where all our time would be given to military drill and parades, and we intended to enter, after promotion, one of the military academies, artillery or engineering. In order to do so we had to prepare in higher geometry, the differential and the beginnings of the integral calculus, and we took private lessons for that purpose. At the same time, elementary astronomy being taught to us under the name of mathematical geography, I plunged into astronomical reading, especially during the last year of my stay at school. The never-ceasing life of the universe, which I conceived as life and evolution, became for me an inexhaustible source of higher poetical thought, and gradually the sense of man's oneness with nature, both animate and inanimate, the poetry of nature, became the philosophy of my life. If the teaching in our school were only limited to the subjects I have mentioned, our time would already be pretty well occupied. But we also had to study in the domain of humanitarian science, history, law, that is, the main outlines of the Russian code, and political economy in its essential leading principles, including a course of comparative statistics, and we had to master formidable courses of military sciences, tactics, military history, the campaigns of 1812 and 1815 in all their details, artillery and field fortification. Looking now back upon this education, I think that apart from the subjects relative to military warfare, which might have been advantageously substituted by more detailed studies in the exact sciences, the variety of subjects which we were taught was not beyond the capacities of the average youth. Owing to a pretty good knowledge of elementary mathematics and physics, which we gained in the lower forms, nearly all of us managed to master all these subjects. Some subjects were neglected by most of us, especially law, as also modern history, for which we had unfortunately an old wreck of a master, who was only kept at his post in order to give him his full old age pension. Moreover, some latitude was given to us in the choice of the subjects we liked best, and, while we underwent severe examinations in these chosen subjects, we were treated rather leniently in the reminder. But the chief cause of the relative success which was obtained in the school was that the teaching was rendered as concrete as possible. As soon as we had learned elementary geometry on paper, we relearned it in the field with poles and the surveyor's chain, and next with the astrolabe, the compass, and the surveyor's table. After such a concrete training, elementary astronomy offered no difficulties, while the surveys themselves were an endless source of enjoyment. The same sort of concrete teaching was applied to fortification. In the winter we solved such problems as, for instance, the following. Having a thousand men and a fortnight at your disposal, build the strongest fortification you can build to protect that bridge for a retreating army. And we hotly discussed our schemes with the teacher when he criticized them. In the summer we applied that knowledge in the field. 
to these practical and concrete exercises i entirely attribute the easiness with which most of us mastered such a variety of subjects at the age of seventeen and eighteen with all that we had plenty of time for amusement our best time was when the examinations were over and we had three or four weeks quite free before going to camp or when we returned from the camp and had another three weeks free before the beginning of the lessons the few of us who remained then in the school were allowed during the vacations to go out just as we liked always finding bed and food at the school i worked then in the library or visited the picture galleries of the hermitage studying one by one all the best pictures of each school separately or i went to the different crown factories and works of playing cards cottons iron china and glass which are open to the public or we went out rowing on the nieva spending the whole night on the river sometimes in the gulf of finland with fishermen a melancholy northern night during which the morning dawn meets the afterglow of the setting sun and a book can be read in the open air at midnight for all this we found plenty of time since those visits to the factories i took a liking to strong and perfect machinery seeing how a gigantic paw coming out of a shanty grasps a log floating in the nieva pulls it inside and puts it under the saws which cut it into boards or how a huge red-hot iron bar is transformed into a rail after it has passed between two cylinders i understood the poetry of machinery in our present factories machinery work is killing for the worker because he becomes a lifelong servant to a given machine and never is anything else but this is a matter of bad organization and has nothing to do with the machine itself overwork and lifelong monotony are equally bad whether the work is done with the hand with plain tools or with a machine but apart from these i fully understand the pleasure that man can derive from the consciousness of the might of his machine the intelligent character of its work the gracefulness of its movements and the correctness of what it is doing and i think that william morris's hatred of machines only proved that the conception of the machine's power and gracefulness was missing in his great poetical genius music also played a very great part in my development from it i borrowed even greater joys and enthusiasm than from poetry the russian opera hardly existed in those times but the italian opera which had a number of first-rate stars in it was the most popular institution at st petersburg when the prima donna bosio fell ill thousands of people chiefly of the youth stood till late at night at the door of her hotel to get news of her she was not beautiful but was so much so when she sang that young men madly in love with her could be counted by the hundred and when she died she had a burial which no one before had ever had at st petersburg all petersburg was then divided into two camps the admirers of the italian opera and those of the french stage which already then was showing in germ the putrid offenbachian current which a few years later infected all europe our form was also divided half and half between these two currents and i belonged to the former we were not permitted to go to the pit or to the balcony while all the boxes in the italian opera were always taken months in advance by subscription and even transmitted in certain families as a hereditary possession but we gained admission on saturday nights to the passages in the uppermost gallery and had to stand there on our legs in a turkish bath atmosphere while to conceal our showy uniforms we used to wear in that turkish bath our black overcoats 
lined with wadding and with a fur collar tightly buttoned. It is a wonder that none of us got pneumonia in this way, especially as we came out overheated with the ovations which we used to make to our favourite singers, and stood afterwards at the stage door to catch once more a glimpse of our favourites and to cheer them. The Italian opera in those years was in some strange way intimately connected with the radical movement, and the revolutionary recitatives in Wilhelm Tell and the Puritans were always met with stormy applause and vociferations which went straight to the heart of Alexander II, while in the six-story galleries, in the smoking-room of the opera, and at the stage-door the best part of the St. Petersburg youth came together in a common idealist worship of a noble art. All this may seem childish, but many higher ideas and pure inspirations were kindled in us by this worship of our favorite artists. End of the Core of Pages Chapter 6